Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I am the pastor here at Lake Oconee, and it is my pleasure and privilege to welcome you all this morning to worship. Whether you are here in person or on the live stream, we are grateful that you have chosen to join with us, and it is our heartfelt prayer and desire that this is a rich time of worship and celebrating the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ together. If you're visiting this morning, whether you're local to the area, from out of town, wherever you might be from, we would encourage you. We hope you grabbed one of our goodie bags in the back. Uh, they're, they're filled with fun swag, I like to call it. I love the big tumblers. They're awesome. And so grab yourself one of those. And for all of you here, if you are on the end of an aisle, it is your responsibility to get this started. We're counting on you. There are pads that where you could register your attendance, gives us the opportunity to get to know you. This is for visitors and members and regular attenders alike. Get that started, pass that down to your neighbor, and let us know that you are here. Several different announcements that I would make. This morning begins officer nominations. Now you might ask, what is that? That is for the class of 2023, beginning today and running through Sunday, June 26th, we take nominations for the offices of elder and deacon. You will find all of the information on sheets back in the narthex, pick that out. That lets you know uh, just kind of exactly how to go through that promise process. Excuse me, you could see Jim Hildebrand if you have any questions regarding that. Next Sunday, June 5th, after the morning service, the session has called a congregational meeting and the purpose of that is to give a brief presentation on the 2022 budget, along with a short briefing on some security measures for the church. And so if at all possible, notice we didn't schedule that for the holiday weekend. We're hoping that as you're barbecuing and everything this weekend, you can make it to the congregational meeting next weekend. And then on Sunday, June 26th, after the morning service, we'll have our patriotic picnic. Sign up in the narthex if you plan to attend the picnic or plan to participate in our annual cornhole tournament. That sounds exciting. I don't know who's going to challenge, who's going to be the challengers, who's going to walk away the chance. See, when we come out of COVID, we come out big. And so you want to participate in this. There are sign-up sheets for both the picnic and the cornhole tournament out in the back. And just I want to mention something. Uh, with it being Memorial Day weekend. One, just in the way of kind of logistics, the office is closed tomorrow. But I was looking at this verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, and it says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, I was thinking about this, honor everyone. On Memorial Day weekend, our honor is to those who have served and given their lives in a tremendous sacrifice for their nation. And so we just want to honor and remember. You know, Memorial Day is different than Veterans Day. In Veterans Day at November, we honor everyone who has served. Memorial Day is that special time where we honor those who have sacrificed by giving their life. And so I just want to mention that uh, at, during our time of announcements as we do that, that that's part of our call as believers, that we honor everyone and we give thanks to those who have served and given their life in that sacrificial way. And so now as we 
prepare our hearts to go to worship. Let's focus on the scriptures, focus on what we are doing this morning, exalting above all Jesus Christ. us to bring our whole selves before him.
our joys, our sorrows, our uncertainties, our doubts, our fears, our pain. He knows us and he understands and he calls us to live in authenticity and process before him. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Father, we thank you that by your rich mercy, you receive us and you welcome us into your presence. Because of Jesus Christ, we are welcomed, we are received, we are accepted, we are loved, we are delighted, and we are approved. Lord, we thank you and we pray that we would sing to you a new song, that we would join with all the earth in exalting your holy name. We ask now that you would grant us your presence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our opening hymn of praise, How Firm a Foundation.
Just think about that last line for a second. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake. Anybody relate to that? Has anybody felt like that lately? That all hell is endeavoring to shake kind of the moorings on which we stand? But look at the promise of God. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. I don't know about you, but I need to be encouraged. And more than one of us are allowed to say amen, by the way. That is, see, I'm going to encourage that. That's a good thing. I like participation. Our need of confession, though, says, oh, God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. And, you know, that's not just foolish actions. He knows the folly in how I think. He knows how much I doubt him at times. He knows how much I look at that promise, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake, and I go, really? All hell is endeavoring to shake me right now, and I feel shaken. And so I have a need, and I'm willing to guess you have a need, that we would come clean before God, because that's what confession is. It is agreeing with God, so it's coming clean before him, and we can only do that if we're assured of his forgiveness assured of his kindness. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so let's take a few moments, engage with him, do business with him, come clean with him in personal confession, and then I will lead us and we will pray together. So when you hear me say, let us pray, that's when it's time for us to pray the corporate confession of sin in unison. Friends, let us pray together. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. For your name's sake, O Lord, Pardon my guilt, for it is great. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all of my sins. Our assurance of pardon comes from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. 
Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Why does God relieve the troubles of our heart? Why does he bring us out of his distress? Because God is rich in mercy. Because it is his very heart to pour out grace and mercy. He's that good. It's that counterintuitive. We expect punishment. He gives us grace. We expect that we're going to get kind of a stern hand. He gives us mercy. All because of Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing together. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. As we go to the Lord in prayer, we are going to pray together the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in a pastoral prayer. We know these last few weeks have been very, very difficult uh, for our country and with things going on, and so I think often, how should we respond as a church? And I think of this particular promise out of the Psalms. Psalm 147, verse 3 says, he heals the brokenhearted, and binds up their wounds. You know, it is so tempting to think that an answer can be found if we just fix something. 
when the only answer for our world, the only answer for our hearts, the only answer there is is found in Jesus Christ. And God has entrusted that answer to the church. If we don't bring the good news to the world, it won't get done because God has entrusted that good news to us. And our message needs to be, we grieve with you. We lament with you. We need to do much more of that than immediately trying to debate something or fix something. So as we go to the Lord in prayer, I want us to remember these promises. He heals the brokenhearted. Maybe your heart is broken this morning. God sees you. Jesus sees you. He hears you. He knows and he cares for your brokenness. He binds up your wounds. Let us pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father in heaven, my heart breaks and is broken as I think about the grief and the loss and the tragedy of these last several weeks. And Father, I know that maybe I'm speaking to, my, to myself. My tendency is to want to look for a solution rather than just suffer with those who suffer, grieve with those who grieve. I pray that you teach us as a church to lament the evils of the world and the evils of our own heart. Teach us to be honest, to be authentic, to pour out our hearts before you, our Lord, who sees us, who knows us. I do pray, Father, for the families who have lost loved ones. I grieve, I cry with them. And I pray, Father, it may take a lifetime, but I pray for healing. And I pray for the church to embody healing. And I pray for us sitting here today. I pray for our stories. I pray for our journeys. I pray, Father, for where you have each one of us. And I pray, Father, that we would pour out our hearts before you. Joys, sorrows, pains, fears, struggles, troubles, because you see us, you know us, you love us, and you care for us. Help us to be that kind of family, that kind of body with one another. Help us, Father, to do life together with all honesty, with all authenticity, encouraging one another, loving one another. Father, we pray for the ministries of the church, and we pray that we would be a church that embodies the good news of the gospel and brings the good news to our communities here. That, Father, we would be outward-facing, looking to meet the needs of others and not just our own needs. That we would do that in our relationship with you and our relationships with one another. We ask your blessing on the work, asking, Father, that we would do all things for your glory and for your kingdom, thanking you that you choose to use us. 
So, Father, we now come before you, and as we continue to worship, we ask that you would be with us. We ask that you would glorify your name, for yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. In Jesus' name, amen. When hope has faded, nothing left to cling to, every pleasure jaded, every will is dry. Christ, the loving shepherd, draws me with his kindness, leads me from the desert to the stream.
feel like before I preach, I always have to stop and thank the choir for, and it's because they're leading us in worship. I always feel like I'm brought more to the throne of grace, and that is just so wonderful. It's not a performance. It's not entertainment. They're bringing us to experience more of Christ, and so thank you. I want Christ to be more of my desire, and I hope you want that as well. Now, we prayed earlier in our confession time, God knows our folly, right? Let me share some of my folly right off the start. You know, I always, that's a good way to start a sermon, right? Let me make confession, okay? Here's, here's some of Jeff Birch's folly. I suffer from allergies. You'll hear me up here going, <clears throat> now I feel fine, feel great. Here's my folly. I should stay in out of the pollen, right? On a beautiful weekend like this, I'm going outside. I'm spending as much time outside. And then guess what? I'm going to say, let's preach the word of God. <clears throat> and I'm gonna... So if you hear me do that, especially on the live stream, forgive me. God knows my folly. And we read just a few minutes ago, he forgives me. Sounds like you all don't have a choice. You have to forgive my folly and my foolishness and this. And that's the folly I can share. Imagine the folly I can't share. So let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer, ask him to bless not only the reading of his word, but the preaching of the word, and bless it to our hearts this morning. We come before you, Father, thanking you that you give us your word because you love us, that it's not an academic book, that the Bible is there that we would know you and experience you, that you want to be known. You've revealed yourself to us. You show us and reveal your heart to us. We ask your forgiveness that we make it an intellectual academic book. And we pray that we would consider the claims of Christ and the hope that Christ brings. Holy Spirit, work amongst us in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have been going through what I call the Mount Everest of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And I have to give a little bit of a review because I understand many of you are visiting from out of town. Let me try to bring you up to speed with what we have been doing. We're going through Romans chapter 8, basically looking at it as how do we experience God? In other words, how do I not just know about God as an abstract concept, but how does God become real to my heart so that I can face the chaos and the turmoil and the difficulties of life? And we've been saying that the key to this is the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the key to experiencing God. And so Romans 8 is all about the Holy Spirit, and that the main thing that the Holy Spirit does, his main business is to show us that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that the Holy Spirit shows us, in spite of how everything might look, how it might feel that God can't lose us and we can't lose him. And so now we are at verses 18 to 27, and we are looking at how the Holy Spirit shows us that we can't lose God and God can't lose us by giving us hope. And isn't that something we need in these days? And so we are going to look, if you have Bibles, turn in, turn in them to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 27. 
and what I am calling the spirit of hope. It begins, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves you. All right, there's this place. I haven't given a Lord of the Rings illustration in a while. Time for me to repent. It's time for, we need to, I need to talk to Marianne Johnson. We need to do a big book binders on the Lord of the Rings sometime. And all three books, not just one. So there's this place in the Lord of the Rings where the king is coming into the city. But he's incognito. So nobody is able to know if it's really, if he's the true king or not. And one of the old wise women says, ah, but the hands of the king are healing hands. And this shall the rightful king be known. So she says, let's take him into the house of healing and see if he can heal some people. The hands of the king are healing hands. Now, Jesus is the king of kings. And he's come, and in his resurrection and ascension, he's inaugurated the kingdom of God. So healing has been inaugurated. His hands are healing hands. But how is that healing seen in the world today? Because Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's not physically in bodily form. Here he's at the right hand of God. So how do we experience his healing? How do we see that? Well, who is it who's united to the king? We've been looking at Romans, and it talks all the time about how the church, how individual Christians, when you become a believer in Christ, you are actually united to Christ. He lives in you, and we experience him by the Spirit. And as this text tells us today, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That means we are to embody that and bring healing. Partial, yes, because it's only been inaugurated, but we are to embody and bring healing to a hurting world. That that is the job and the vocation of the church. And so part of the Holy Spirit's role is to help us to hope 
and to offer that hope in our relationships to others. That we are to be people of hope. And that requires honesty. That requires us being honest with how chaotic our lives and the world might be. What our suffering might really be like. No more of this. We, here's a big thing the church needs to repent of today. This whole mindset of pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You can't do it. And you've been given the Holy Spirit to help you offer that hope to the world, to embody healing, even if it's just a touch of it, a taste of it to the world. What does this text teach us? And this, what a rich text. There's part of me, I wanted to dwell on the fact that the creation was subjected to futility. I'm thinking to myself, a month ago, I was blessed to be able to go to the Masters, and I'm thinking, if that's futility, and that's groaning and waiting for the redemption of, and the revelation of the adoption, we could spend a whole month right there. Talk about a pregnant text. But we're going to look at three brief things in this text. What does this passage teach us concerning hope? We're going to see our need of hope, which gives us a perspective in suffering. And oh, how we need that. How practical that is. The scope of hope, which gives us purpose in living. And we're going to see that the scope of hope is cosmic. It's comprehensive. It's not just our relationship with God. It's not just God and me. And then finally, hopefully, some practical things about the fruit of hope. First of all, the need of hope. And I want you to notice Paul moves in this passage from the present ministry of the Spirit to the future glory of God's children. Look with me at verse 23, where he says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? We ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. That means a first fruits of a new creation. Now, let's ask ourselves the question, first of all, what prompted Paul to make this change in focus? How does this serve his case? Well, let's remember, and I did this when I reviewed just a few minutes ago, his argument in the whole passage. His argument in the whole passage is how the Holy Spirit's helping us to experience God, to know that God can't lose us, we can't lose God, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, now I want you to be extremely practical with me for a second. One of the most practical issues that can hinder our experience of being assured that nothing can separate us from the love of God is the reality of suffering. The reality of suffering. One of the most common questions asked today by people considering Christianity, maybe you're asking this question here this morning is, why do bad things happen in the world? Why are there shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde? If God is so good, if God is so loving, if God is so powerful, why are there bad things that happen? Why is there such suffering? Paul ends the previous section in verse 17 by saying, now if we are children, then we are heirs. We are, if you belong to Christ, you get to inherit this whole thing with Jesus. You're heirs of the entire world. And then he says, if indeed we share in his suffering. So Paul is alluding to suffering and glory, ending the previous section, 
and now suffering and glory become the themes throughout this whole section. So how does Paul address this intensely practical issue? Why do we need hope? Well, the first thing we need to realize is Paul is telling us, in this world, suffering and glory absolutely belong together. They are married. They are welded together. They cannot be divorced. They cannot be broken apart. And that is because suffering and glory characterize the two basic ages of history, what the New Testament calls this age and the age to come. The contrast between this age of history and the age of history to come, and so between the present and the future, is neatly summarized in these terms, suffering and glory. And this includes not only the opposition of the world, but also our own human frailty, our own human brokenness, both our physical frailty and our spiritual or moral brokenness. So it is comprehensive of everything that is considered in the reality of living in a fallen world. This is our context, our situation. But Paul also wants us to know that the sufferings and glory cannot be compared. Look at verse 18. He says, for I consider. What does that mean? It means he's thinking out. He's rationally contrasting. He's saying they can't be compared, but they can be contrasted. He's reasoning out. He's thinking about the implications of his belief system. And he says, I consider that our present sufferings, and he's looking at all of them, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now again, why is this so practical? Why is Paul emphasizing this here? Remember, he's building a case, an argument showing us how the Holy Spirit helps us experience God. And one of the most significant stumbling blocks in our ability to trust God and experience God is human suffering. People look at things and go, how can God be good? And loving. And so Paul wants us to know that the way you handle your present, your perspective in the present, is completely determined by your prospect of the future. Listen to how Tim Keller put it. He said, A hope is a future prospect, something so great and so good that it makes it possible to face the hardship, face the difficulties. It makes it possible to face the hardship and to feel that everything you do is meaningful, not pointless. In other words, a hope is looking at the future and saying that is so great. That's why he says our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now that's a hope. It's a future prospect. Tim Keller illustrates it this way. He says, imagine two different people having the same job. And the job is extremely boring, difficult, long hours, no benefits, bad pay, bad people. So the job's, you get in the picture? The job's horrific from beginning to end. But the first is told that after one year, you get $15,000. And the second is told after one year, you get $15 million. How do they react? 
The first says, that's it, I can't bear it, I'm out of here. And the second says, this is hard, but I can do it. I can face it. They are completely controlled by their hope. You have to have a hope. That's the first point, the need of hope. You need to recognize that. You need a hope. Secondly, what is the scope of hope? And this is mind-blowing because it's the whole of God's creation. Look with me at verses 20 to 22. It says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Look at this. Here in these verses, Paul again is taking up the themes of suffering and glory, but he's applying it to the cosmos itself. He's applying it to the creation itself because he's building a case for the comprehensiveness the cosmic reality of the hope we have in Christ. First thing he says is the creation was subjected to frustration, to futility. The word there for futility means emptiness, purposelessness, transitoriness. The basic idea is emptiness. Think of the book of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless is life under the sun. Vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. One commentator I read said that the whole book of Ecclesiastes is a commentary on this verse. This commentator said this phrase expresses the existential absurdity of a life lived under the sun, imprisoned in time and space with no ultimate reference point to either God or eternity. It is the futility of life separated from and alienated from God. And Paul adds that the creation is subject to this futility, this emptiness, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That means this is under the sovereignty of God. He is the one who, in judgment, subjected the world to curse. But the last two words of the verse, in hope, point to the fact that God is always entertaining hope for the world. He says, because the world was subject to futility in the past, it groans in the present. This is amazing that he's personifying nature here. Think about some of the beautiful places we visit in the world. I know Evie and I have a bucket list of all the places we would like to travel. I can't imagine, I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I can't imagine the Grand Canyon is groaning right now. Some of the places we go to, it says they are groaning, and look at what they're waiting for. They're waiting for the revelation of us, the children of God. See, this is the hope that we have to consider. This is why Paul says our sufferings now, and he's not minimizing, he's not being insensitive. Our suffering is real, and it's painful. It's hard, but he's saying it's not worth comparing with the glory because even the creation itself, can't wait for us, believers in Jesus, to be revealed. See, we ask the question, are the groans meaningless? Verse 22 says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning. And how does he liken it? In the pains of childbirth. He likens it to the pains of childbirth 
providing assurance of the coming emergence of a new order, just like a woman gives birth to a baby, goes from the pains of childbirth to new life. The creation right now is in the pains of childbirth, waiting for the emergence of a new order, an order that instead of being marked by emptiness and despair and alienation and death and decay and division will be marked by healing and well-being and integration and coherence and order. The universe is not going to be annihilated or destroyed. It's rather going to be liberated, transformed, and suffused with the glory of God. One of the most practical applications we need as followers of Jesus is bigger imaginations. Because this is huge. This is incredible. First, he says, it is a liberation from its bondage to decay. Decay is its current state. He says, and that denotes a running down. Nature's enslaved in this unending cycle. But it's going to be freed from that cycle. And then he says, there's this positive aspect. It will be liberated into the glorious freedom of the children of God. John Stott, a commentator on this passage, says, God's creation will share in the glory of God's children, which is itself the glory of Christ. Do you realize if you're a believer in Jesus, that's your future? That the glory of Christ is your future. I don't know about you, but I need a change of focus. I'm too busy thinking about today rather than letting my future prospect control my today. So what might our lives look like? What is some of the fruit of this hope? If we start to be cult if we start to cultivate this kind of hope, well, notice the transition from verses 22 to 23. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation, and then verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We no longer live in Adam, we live in Christ. We no longer live according to the flesh, we live according to the Spirit. And Paul says you have the first fruits of the Spirit. It's kind of a down payment, a foretaste of the new world. You know, heaven has begun, and it's begun now in and through Christians, in and through the church. It's just a matter of what we're giving the world a taste of. Do we give the world a taste of heaven, or do we give the world a taste of the world? See, we've received this down payment. The new creation has already begun in us. That's the meaning of 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So Paul says we continue to groan inside ourselves as we wait eagerly for our adoption as our, of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And what are some of the fruit if we start to embrace this hope? First, it's truly a supernatural life. Tim Keller writes, he says, the Holy Spirit right now is giving us a gradual internal freedom from the effects of sin and death in our lives. Listen to how C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity put it. C.S. Lewis writes, if we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature 
pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. God meant what he said. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus, you live a supernatural life. Do we recognize that? As we mentioned last week, the Spirit comes into our life not as a visitor. We're not the Motel 6 leaving the light on, but he resides in us permanently, changing us, transforming us, making us more and more beautiful and radiant and just as gorgeous as Jesus is. Our lives ought to be marked by supernatural power. There should be a touch of heaven in the way we love each other, move into each other's lives, speak to each other, enter into each other's lives. But there also ought to be a missional aspect to that as well. Our lives with this supernatural power are to be oriented towards the world. Remember the scope of hope. Cosmic renewal. See, God has a mission. God is working and God is up to something. Healing, restoration. See, and it's not that the church is supposed to have a mission. God has a mission and he has a church for his mission. And notice what the book of Acts says. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, and the Spirit is for witness. The Spirit is not there just to make you feel better about yourself. The Spirit is there for you to be oriented towards the world. That might be your family. That might be your neighborhood. That doesn't mean we go out and change the world, but it means we're oriented outwards towards others where God has sovereignly placed us. Wherever you are, our lives are to be marked by supernatural. He's making you more beautiful for the sake of the world. Michael Goheen says God's goal is cosmic creation-wide renewal, and he chooses a community to embody and make known that future. That's our role. Is to we receive hope, we offer that hope to the world. And one of the ways we do it, and this may sound very counter-cultural, counter-intuitive to you, is having this taste of heaven and offering that to the world ought to give us an authenticity to our lives. That is because of having the first fruits of the Spirit, we know that this life is not the way it is supposed to be. You're not oriented to the world if all you're trying to do is fix everything. Come alongside. Share your struggles. Be transparent. Be vulnerable. We groan and inwardly wait. Share that with others. They need to know that. Let there be an authenticity about your life. There should be absolutely no pretending and no fakeness in the Christian lives. We don't promise a pie in the sky, everything will be okay, existence in this world. Suffering is real. Pain is real. It is not to be discounted or dismissed. And do you know what your non-Christian neighbors and family members need? They need honesty from you. 
They need you to be real. They need to hear from you. Life is tough. I'm struggling. I'm barely holding on to this hope, but I have it. Why? Because though all hell will endeavor to shake me, God will never, no, never, no, never. How many nevers do you think the writer of that hymn could have put in there? I think he needed a few more. We've got to quit portraying a witness that says, I have my act all together. Can I tell you something, friends? That is ugly. Maybe there's nothing uglier than our trying to present to the world we have our act together. We are needy and we have a big Christ who's rich in mercy. Part of our supernatural living is to truly enter into our own and others' pain. How do we do that? Think about for a second when Jesus met Mary and Martha after the death of Lazarus. Before he raised, now he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? Talk about fixing the problem. I'm ready for resurrection. Fix my problems, God. Tell me, Jeff, come forth. I'm ready to rock and roll. But what did he do first? He wept. That is, he entered into and felt. The text there in John 11 actually says he raged at death. He groaned at the horror and tragicness and pain of death. Death is not the way this world is supposed to work. It's not natural. Which is why, how does this all work itself out? Look with me at verses 26 and 27. And this is the point of likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Isn't that amazing? It doesn't help us in our strength. If you're trying to pretend to be strong, you're basically saying you don't need the Spirit. The context for the Spirit being powerful in your life is your weakness. He says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. I don't know about you, but these last few weeks I have felt like there are just no words. I've just felt like, okay, what am I supposed... I'm supposed to be a pastor. I'm supposed to have answers. And then I'm like, no. The only answer is Jesus. And part of it is we are weak and the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And sometimes there are just no words. And you know, the Spirit's attracted to that. Because you look at this and it says the Spirit himself intercedes. He comes and he prays for you. And he prays for you with groaning too deep for words. And it's not any type of prayer because look at what the Spirit does. He intercedes for the saints, that's believers, according to the will of God. And what is the will of God? In 1 John 3, he puts it this way. He says, this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. So what is the Spirit interceding for us? What is he with inexpressible groans wanting us to get? He wants us to fall in love with Christ. He's taking from what is Jesus's and manifesting it to us. He wants us to love Jesus above all other things. Love Jesus above family, love Jesus above nation, love Jesus above all other things. He, the Holy Spirit is shining a flood, floodlight to your soul saying, isn't Jesus great? And that's what we are to offer to the world. How do we live with the fruit of hope? 
We gaze at Christ. We pray. We're authentic. We are real. We trust that the Spirit is interceding for you with groaning too deep for words. We trust that Jesus has defeated death and decay. Death does not get the final word. Jesus gets the final word. Resurrection gets the final word. And that you are a co-heir with Jesus and what he's won. Let's embody that and offer that to the world. Let's pray. Lord, help us to not live by being together, how much we have our act together. Help us to live by faith, hope, and love. This morning, we've looked at how to cultivate hope. But I pray that we would learn to cultivate all three of these things. Father, may you apply these things. Sometimes there really are no words. We just pray that, Holy Spirit, you will be at work in our lives that our lives would over, that we'd be filled with love and overflow with the love of Christ to a hurting world. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn this morning.
end of the Bible says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Friends, receive the benediction, the blessing of God, and go from this place as we hasten and wait for the coming of our Lord and Savior to be a blessing to the world. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.